privilege to be with you here tonight, Brother Chris, whenever he said that, I said, I'm so sorry, I took too much time. I remember uh, I said the same thing uh, many years ago, and uh, Elder Cecil Darty was going to speak behind me, and I did take too much time, and he said, uh, I hate to see an uh, engine hitting on all eight cylinders sit down when you don't know whether the next motor's gonna get crunk or not. <laughs> so, so um, the Lord blessed Brother Chris to hit on all eight cylinders, thank the Lord. Um, you know, time did not permit me, and I was so sad that I didn't get to greet each one of you individually um, during the evening hour, the fellowship hour, but it uh, is, I cannot tell you how wonderful it is to see your dear faces. I love you all so much, and I could not wait uh, to be back here at Bethel Church again. Thank you for condescending and allowing me to come and be here with you all this evening. Um, and Brother Chris could remember the exact year that he came, and if I was Mike Mitchell, I'd know the exact day and year that I came here and who was preaching whenever I got here and what their text was and what their wife's maiden name was. I'd know all that. I just remember it was in the very early 80s, like 81 or 2 or something, whenever I came here, and it has been a great joy every time that I came. The presence of the Lord was here, the presence of God. God has routinely attached his presence to the fellowship of believers known as Bethel Primitive Baptist Church for as long as I've known it. And tonight, we, with the Lord's help uh, in your prayers, I want to talk to you about an item in the Old Testament that God routinely attached his presence to. If you have God's word with you, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 5. 1 Samuel chapter 5. And we're going to read just a few verses, not many. 1 Samuel chapter 5. It's a very dramatic passage of scripture, and I recommend the previous chapter, this chapter, 4, 5, and 6, really get the whole context. Um, very dr high drama in the word. If you think that God's word is dry reading, it's just because you never read it. <laughs> it's very dramatic. 1 Samuel chapter 5. And when the Philistines, who were kind of new to this area, they, in history, they're kind of new. The word uh, Philistine means immigrant. They had kind of imposed themselves into that area. They were not from this part of the Fertile Crescent. They came in, they moved in, pushed people out. The word Philistine means immigrant. And so they are very aggressive, very assertive people. They fought Israel. And they've got the ark of God. The Philistines took the ark of God. They brought it from Ebenezer unto Ashdod, which was their capital. And when the Philistines took the ark of God, they brought it in the house of Dagon, which was their big god. Being good pagans, they had many gods. Dagon was the god of gods. And so, uh, as we're going to see, out, out of a matter really of respect to the ark, 
because this is paganism at its best you honor all gods lest you upset one <laughs> and so they knew they knew that there was power in that ark it had been shared what God had done uh, the God of that ark had done to the Egyptians and their gods and what he'd done to the gods of the Ayats as they passed through in the Exodus journey in the wilderness they knew that the God of the Hebrews was a powerful God. Just in their mind, Dagon has the upper hand right now. And so they put the ark in Dagon's temple. And when they have Ashdod arose early on the morrow, behold, Dagon, their idol God, their big God, Dagon was falling on his face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. And so they come in the first morning and Dagon has fallen over. And so the priest of Dagon come in. They see the idols turned over. And I can imagine, I'm an old high school principal. I know exactly what they said. Those darn teenagers have gotten in here again. That's what they said. I mean, it could have been an accident, right? Or teenagers, adolescents. For every teenager in here, I apologize. I said that was wrong. I know teenagers in here would not do that. So, uh, so that's the first morning. That's what takes place. But the next morning, verse 4, when they arose early on the morrow morning, behold, Dagon was fallen upon his face to the ground before the ark of God, and the head of Dagon and both palms of his hands were cut off upon the threshold. Only the stump of Dagon was left to him. Therefore, neither the priest of Dagon nor any that come into Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod until this day. <clears throat> Dagon and the ark. Looking at something or someone that got close to the Lord. It's a big thing today. People, listen, people are not less uh, spiritual than they were 50 years ago. They're just spiritual about other matters. I mean, they're, Amer America is not as Christian as it used to be. We all know that. We're a pluralistic nation, but we're not less interested in the supernatural. We're just pursuing other gods now, not the God of the Bible. No less spiritual. There's a God-sized hole in, the, in, in place where the heart had been before the fall. There's a God-sized hole there that men by nature try to fill with the gods of this world. Men are still spiritual. They just go after the wrong thing. But tonight we're not going to focus on Dagon. We're going to focus on the ark. In the Old Testament, whenever a person draw near, when, when an individual is going to draw near to God, there's going to be a physical item present usually. Uh, whenever Abraham, when, when God draws near to Abraham and Abraham to God in Genesis chapter 15, there's a burning lamp. When uh, Jacob has his experience as he's fleeing from his home on the first night and he lays down and he makes, uh, he makes a hard pillow for himself. There's a ladder that's let down from heaven, physical ladder. Um, uh, 
Moses, whenever he experiences the presence of God, really for the first time that we know in uh, Exodus chapter 3, it's a burning bush. There's a bush that's on fire. It's not consumed. It's a physical object. And of course, you know what Job experienced when he finally meets God. God answers Job's desire. Job said, oh, that I knew where I might find him. And I would order my cause before him. God shows up as a mighty whirlwind. Job got tight-lipped, didn't he? <laughs> but frequently, often, in the Old Testament, the presence of God is attached to some physical object. And here tonight, we're with a physical object where God routinely, the others are, are kind of one-time deals. We only see the whirlwind one time, the burning lamp one time, the ladder one time. But... God routinely in the Old Testament here, he's going to attach his presence to an ark. It's a four foot by two foot by two foot box. It's covered with gold. Uh, it's got four rings on the ends of it. Staves are put through them. That's important. Staves are put through them. And that's how you're to carry it, by those staves. If you're a Levite that's correctly appointed to that duty. Not just anybody picked it up. We're going to see. Uh, there was a slab of gold on top of it. The lid was a solid slab of gold. And there were, two, um, there were two golden sculptures that were on it. And they're called cherubims. They're the angels of God's face. And they turn inside. And, they, and they're kind of looking down and toward one another. But really, they're, they're kind of looking at nothing. They're, they're looking a little down and toward each other. But there's nothing there. Nothing there. Maybe looking a little down toward that slab of gold. The lid, by the way, is called the mercy seat inside, you know, or the tablets of stone. That's important. The law of God. The golden pot of manna and Aaron's rod that budded. And it was kept. It was kept in the back room. The back room is always a place of power. And the holiest of holies. And nobody goes back there except under certain condition and at a certain time. Each year, once Moses is gone, no one goes back there but the high priest. And it's written that over the mercy seat, God will dwell there. I mean, it's, it's powerful. It's powerful. God's going to dwell over the mercy seat. Whenever he's going to appear on the ark, his glory, it's called, uh, in the Hebrew, it's called the kaboth. And that means heavy, weighty. The glory of God is weighty, it's mighty, it's heavy. I remember uh, many, many years ago, a young lady from our church, God love her, she meant well. You can be very sincere and be sincerely wrong. I love her to pieces. She went to New York City and she was so proud. She came back, it was her senior trip. She came back, she had a... She had a license. And she said, Brother David, I bought this for you all the way from New York City. I love her so much today. She's a mother with three children. She said, and I hope she's not watching. She said, I bought this license tag for you. And I looked at the license tag. And on the license tag, it says, Jesus is my homeboy. <laughs> I said, come in here. Sit down. Let's talk. <laughs> no. Jesus is not our homeboy. <laughs> He is the God of glory, heavy glory, weighty glory, and all the universe gathers round about him. 
He's the great God, the mighty God, the everlasting God. And that glory would come and dwell over the ark, over the mercy seat, in between those two cherubim. And nobody touched that ark. You didn't even look at it. Nobody looked at it. God attached himself to a bush, to a whirlwind, to a burning lamp once, but routinely he'll attach himself to this ark. So here's the story. I'm going to do this. Can you all listen real fast? <laughs> um, here's the story. This is taking place in a larger story. What happened in the temple in Ashdod, Dagon's temple, is taking place in a larger story. What had happened in the previous chapter, in chapter 4, the Israelites, a hundred thousand strong, had gone out to meet the Philistines. Things were not going well with them. Things were not going well in Israel spiritually. Spiritually, they were about then, they were about back then where America is today. Completely turned their back on God. They were being led, spirit, you know, listen, as the leadership of a nation goes, so goes a nation. Amen? And they had, uh, they had a spineless high priest, Eli, and his two wicked sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who were doing horrible, deplorable things. Horrible and deplorable things at the door of the tabernacle. Unspeakable things. Things that I wouldn't talk about tonight. Why did Israel put up with them? Because Hophni and Phinehas didn't call out the Israelites on their wicked ways. That's right. Well, we'll put up with the preacher as long as he doesn't challenge us on what we're doing. And so they were getting along fine. Everybody was happy. They were doing just whatever they want. If they felt good, they were doing it. So... The Philistines come, this bunch of aggressive immigrants come in, and they're militaristic, warlike people. They come in, they're going to impose themselves. They're usurpers. They're going to impose themselves in the land of Israel. And so they go to battle against Israel. Israel goes out to meet them, and they are put to the worst for it. That means they're losing. And so they say, oh, I know what we'll do. All we have to, somebody go get the ark. We're never defeated if the ark's here. Go get the ark. And so Hophni and Phinehas, they're, they're not above uh, using a talisman, a good luck charm. That's all the ark was to them, was a good luck charm. And so we're not above using a good luck charm, knock on wood. And they bring the ark down, and all of Israel, oh, this is it. We know that's it. They're not walking by faith. They're walking by sight. They see the ark. Everything's going to be fine. There's a shout that goes up. The Philistines say, oh, no, we're going to be the worst for this. And uh, they go out to battle. The Philistines trembling in just a little bit. A hundred thousand Israelites are put to the sword. They're running before the Philistines. God has left them. The ark is powerless. Isn't that incredible? The ark is powerless. There's no power in the ark. A hundred, it can't protect itself, and a hundred thousand Israelite soldiers can't protect it. It's incredible. All right. It ends up in, it ends up in Dagon's house, paganism. 
I want to talk about that very quickly. I don't have time. Paganism is this. Paganism is, is just like magic. There's no relationship in, in paganism between the adherent of the pagan god, between the worshiper of the pagan god and the worshiper. There's no relationship. There is not. They don't have an affection for Dagon. The Babylonians didn't have an affection for Baal. They weren't in love with Baal. They weren't in love with Nebo. They're gods. They're main gods. Uh, it's just, what can Baal and Nebo do for us? What can Dagon do for us? What can Isis do for us? Okay, we'll serve you. We'll, we'll give you sacrifice. We'll give you offerings. We, literally, this is paganism. You scratch our back, we'll scratch yours. You do this for me, I'll do that for you. And they wear their relationship with their God just like a good luck charm. I do enough for you, you take care of me. That's the heart of paganism. And they're not loyal to one God. You know, whenever Paul talked about uh, in the church at Galatia, it was made up of uh, former Jews and it was more made up of former pagan Gentiles. And so he warns, he, he warns the former pagan Gentiles. He said, be careful. In, in the fourth chapter, he says, listen, be careful former pagan Gentiles, be careful that you don't return to the weak and beggarly elements that you came out of. That's paganism. Weak, the beggarly elements. So what does that mean? Beggarly elements. Paul called paganism beggarly elements. Well, here's what paganism did back in ancient times. It divided up the earth into, it divided up the world into things, its basic elements, the beggarly elements. It divided up the world into the elements like earth, wind, fire, water. And so we'll worship the God of earth so that our harvest will be blessed. We'll, we'll have a God of fire. We'll have a God of water. We'll have a God of wind. We'll have a God of the harvest. We'll have, we'll have a God of fertility. And, and they break up the world into these basic elements and they create gods to them and they appease those gods so that they can get what they need from those elements that are existing around about them. They have no love for them, but they want what those gods can give them. You know, there are a lot of Americans, that's what their Christianity comes down to. That's what a lot of the health, wealth, and prosperity, name it and claim it boys are about. I do not mean to be unkind. I'm just tired of that. <laughs> I'm not here. The reason I'm here tonight is not because of religion. I'm here because of a relationship that I have with a living Lord. I love him, and that's why I want to serve him. He first loved me, and his love has drawn me to him. I'm not here because of a creed or some mere religion. I'm here because of a person, a real person that I love and that loves me. I'm not interested in pagan religion. This is just you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Not at all. So, but if you were a pagan, if you were uh, athletic, then you could worship the god of athletes. If you were, if you were beautiful, you could worship Aphrodite. She would help you out. If, uh, if you were a party animal, you could worship Bacchus, and he'd help you out. They had somebody for everyone. It's incredible. You didn't love them. You just served them. 
So, as I told you, they had no doubt that Jehovah was real. There was no doubt that Jehovah was real. But they thought that the battle had proved, they thought that the battle had proved that their God was more functional. We'll bring Jehovah in, we'll bring his ark in, and we'll, we'll show him, we'll tip our hats to him. Uh, but our God's better. And then Dagon loses his head in his hand. God chose them. <laughs> I love Isaiah 46, 9. Don't you? Isaiah 46, 9. He says, you remember the former things of old, that I'm God and there is none else. I'm God and there is none like me. I'm God. Singularly, exclusively, I'm him. And he's had enough of Dagon and the Philistines. So he cuts his head off. He has no ability. Cuts his hands off. He has no power. He has no wisdom. I'm God. Okay, so that's what happens. No, he has no knowledge. He has no power. So he takes care of Dagon. And then he begins to work on the land of the Philistines. Philistia. He almost decimates an entire kingdom. I'm telling you, before they could get the ark out of there, he'd all but destroyed the Philistines. And wherever, they're going to they're gonna get it out of Ashdod. It's destroying Ashdod, so we'll carry it down to Ekron. They have a riot down in Ekron. You're not bringing that down here to us. It almost killed everybody up there where it was. Don't bring that ark here. And so, you know the story, they put it on the cart and they get it down to Beth Shemesh and uh, the Israelites are so excited down in Beth Shemesh to see it and they forget who they're dealing with. <laughs> they forget that he's God and there is none else and that he's the God of glory and they forget that you don't just approach God any kind of way and they all go and they look inside the ark. 50,070 of them fall. That's incredible. That's Israelites. That's incredible, isn't it? And so um, 20 years later, David sends Ford and they put it on a cart. Is that how God said it's to be carried? That was their first mistake. Don't put it on a cart. Carry it with staves by the appointed right man. They put it on a cart and it stumbles a little bit. And Uzzah, well-meaning, well, like I told you, you can be sincere, but be sincerely wrong as well. He was sincere. He was sincerely wrong. And I don't care what kind of eye he was when he touched it. He was a deadite. <laughs> Now, that's amazing, isn't it? All of a sudden, one day, the ark cannot deliver itself, and a hundred it's impotent. It can't help itself in battle, and a hundred thousand Israelite soldiers can't deliver it, and then the next day, it's decimating a nation. Isn't that incredible? So, what do we learn then about drawing close to God? Don't try. <laughs> Wear an asbestos suit if you go. Take a hard hat with you. You think that the word of God is telling us, I love this, that he is an unpredictable God. You do not put our God in a box. This is about as far as I'm going to be able to get tonight, but you remember this. He is an unpredictable God. He is a holy God. And I'm telling you in one sense, and I don't mean as far as your eternal salvation is concerned, he's a dangerous God. He is. Behold the goodness and the severity of God. Don't, 
Don't play with God. I heard Elder John Henry throw one of my dear friends from many years ago. He was preaching. He said, you don't play with God. He said, you can play with one another all you want, but God ain't no play pretty. <laughs> He's a holy God, independent God. God all by himself. So, today, people... They're more instead of whether it's true and God's God and he's worthy to be worshipped. They just want to know a lot of people, not you all, not you all. That's the reason I love you. But I'm telling you, there are a lot of folks. They just want to know, what can God do for me? Paganism. I had a sister many years, about 35 years ago. She no longer attends. <laughs> She, was, she and her husband, her two children, started coming to church. And so we were very happy to have them. And they invited us to go to lunch one day. And my wife and I were there at lunch with them. And just randomly, you know, like a squirrel moment, just randomly, she told me how much money she and her husband were giving each month. And then paused for me to be properly impressed. That was clear. It was, you know, pause for effect. And I said, well, thank you. That's very kind. And she said, well, she said, really, you know, the way I think about it, listen to this. This is somebody sitting in an old Baptist church. She said, well, the way I think about it is it's money. <laughs> she said, it's money well spent. It keeps my family in operating shape. It's kind of like insurance money. I said, what do you mean by that? She says, well, we bless the Lord and the Lord blesses us. That's paganism. It is. That's, that sounds very hard, doesn't it? But I'm telling you, God weighs the motives of our heart. And he's not going to accept anything, the word of God says, except faith which worketh by love. Now, that's the reason the Lord loves a cheerful giver. That's faith working by love. Don't be like my father when they were building a new church at Mount Enon, raising money for the new church at Mount Enon. He said, now, folks, he said, listen, the Lord loves a cheerful giver, but I'll take it from a grouch. Now, I didn't know whether that was right for him to say that or not, but he said it. <laughs> it should be faith which worketh by love. So, you know, to her, God to her right then, God to her right then was no more than the ark was to Eli. Eli, Phineas, and Hophni. Phineas and Hophni, they didn't love the God of the ark. They didn't love what the ark represented. It was just like a good luck charm. Do you wear God like a good luck charm? Is he like a talisman? Stay on good terms so the spare tire's there in case I have a flat going down the road of life. That's not it. It's not it. The presence of God Listen to me. So this last thing we have to say, the presence of God. There are three things I want to talk to you about getting close to God, but just one. The presence of God is not permanently attached to any one thing now. It's not. It's not permanently attached to any one thing. So what does that mean? That he's not at our beck and call. We're dependent upon him. He's not dependent upon us. And he moves in ways among us and with us, listen to me very carefully, 
he moves in ways among us and with us that seem good to him. He is not going to fit inside of your box. We sometimes lose sight of him with whom we have to do. We forget who it is that we're doing spiritual business with. C.S. Lewis said he is not a tame God. He's not a tame God. You don't put him in your pocket. God is the untamed center of this universe. I want to read to you a little quote if you'll let me. Um, I hope every grandparent parent here, if you haven't done it already, next week go out and buy the Chronicles of Narnia and put them in your child's home or your grandchild's home, please. C.S. Lewis is my favorite writer outside of the biblical writers. I love him so much. He's made a big impact on me over the course of the years. I love to read. I don't understand everything he understands, but I do love to read, especially as giving a defense of the Christian faith. And he, but he wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, which I've read probably four or five times now, all seven books. I love them. And in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, it's all about the Pevensey children. So give me just a few minutes with C.S. Lewis. This isn't a C.S. Lewis book tour, by the way, but just stay with me. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the main characters are the Pevensey children. And the Pevensey children end up in this never-never land called Narnia. They get there by going through a wardrobe. Follow me now. They get there by going through a wardrobe in their uncle's home in a beautiful country manor. They go into the wardrobe, and when they get to the back of the wardrobe, all of a the sudden they're in Narnia. But Narnia is in a dreadful winter. The witch of winter is in control. And everything is frozen. It's always snowing and ice, but never Christmas, C.S. Lewis says. Kind of like this world. And um, every once in a while, the Christ figure, the Christ symbol in this tale is a mighty lion named Aslan. The mighty lion Aslan. He created Narnia by a song that he sung. He's a representative of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's so wonderful to read these books. And so... Uh, this, this queen has gotten the upper hand and she's caused it to be perpetual winter. But, but there's a rustling in the forest. There's a rumor in the forest that when Aslan comes, spring will return. The snows will melt and it will be spring again. The wicked witch of winter knows that the Pevensey children, the sons and daughters of Adam have come to Narnia and there's a prophecy when they get there Aslan will return and she'll die she'll be killed so she wants to kill the Pevensey children you say well aren't they all children there I do need to let you know I'm about to quote a beaver right now <laughs> the animals of Narnia talk and you say well you know old Bethel Church has been here for a hundred plus years and nobody's ever quoted Mr. Beaver from the pulpit before well there's a first for everything I won't quote Mr. Beaver. It's all about Aslan. It's what they have to say about the mighty lion Aslan, who is the Christ figure. We need to remember who we're dealing with in our life, our God. 
Luther told Erasmus when they were debating theology back and forth, and I don't understand everything Luther understood. Just because I say his name doesn't mean I agree with everything he wrote. But I do agree with what he said. He told Erasmus the reason Erasmus could not embrace the sovereignty of God as opposed to the free will of man. He told Erasmus, he said, my friend, your thoughts of God are far too human. America's thoughts of God tonight are far too human. We think Jesus is our homeboy. But listen to this conversation between, and I'm also going to read from my phone. In high school, when this happens, we take the phone away from our students. We don't let, so Brother Ronald, I'm sure he'll take my phone before I come in the pulpit tomorrow. He had his phone out in the pulpit. Here it goes. Here's the quote. Susan, the oldest of the Pevensey children, they know the witch is after them and that Aslan is going to take her if they can find her. And so she, they've told her now, the person who's going to take care of you is a lion, Aslan the lion. It's, I know. And so she, Susan says, she's as amazed as you all about this. She said, Aslan is a lion? The lion? The great lion? Ooh, said Susan. I thought he'd be a man. I'd hoped he'd be a man. And then she asked this. Listen to me. She said, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. And here comes Mr. Beaver. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course, he isn't safe. But he's good. <laughs> but he's good. He's not safe. He's mighty. He wraps himself in thick clouds of glory. He walks on the clouds of his glory. He wields. He gives command. Lightning consults with him. He's not safe, but he's good. Praise his holy name. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Jesus is not at our beck and call. He is not. And he doesn't always, he doesn't always attach himself to the same thing every time. The Pevensey children lost, they, they had to leave Narnia. And they got out of Narnia, and no sooner they got out of Narnia, they wanted to go back. So what do they do? They go back to the wardrobe. Listen to me very quickly, two more minutes. They go back to the wardrobe to go into Narnia. But guess what? They can't go back through the wardrobe. They never get, they go back to Narnia, but they never get back into Narnia the same way again. You see, God is, I have, when I get to feeling empty, I think, okay, I know what I'll do. I'll read Psalm 112. I love Psalm 112. But then there are times that those old scriptures, when I, felt the Lord and I haven't felt him and I've missed him and I haven't been in his presence and I, and I go back, no, I'll read this scripture and I'll feel him here because I've felt him there. Every other time I read this scripture and I go to the scripture and that scripture has lost its fragrance. It's still the scripture. It's just God is not going to let me make a God out of the scripture. He's going to let me know, no, you need the God of the scripture. Or 
I'll call out a hymn. I'm feeling low and I go to church and I'll, and I'll call out, you, you all sing for me. I'm, I'm feeling low today. And Jesus paid it all. That always does it for me. If you'll just sing Jesus paid it all. And they sing Jesus paid it all. But it's lost its fragrance. God is not going to give his glory to a hymn. Well, if they'll preach old brother so-and-so, he always preaches. <laughs> you don't have to worry. If we get him and you get that attitude, and he may preach for everybody else in the congregation that day, but he won't preach for you. <laughs> He's lost his fragrance. God will not allow you you know, that's why I get, I get very concerned whenever we're going to remodel building. Can you believe this? Something? Well, we don't want to remodel because my granddaddy made that old bench and I've just sat on that bench and I felt the Lord there. Like God is attached to the bench. Can you believe people would actually feel like that? So let me tell you, in my office, in my office right now, for 43 years, I preached in front of a piece of paneling. It was right behind me for 43 years at McClinney Church, where I've been pastor for going into 46 years now. And, they, and so we were going to tear it down and remodel. And they were going to throw that piece of paneling that I preached in front of 43 years. Well, I felt the Lord, and the Lord blessed me there. And, and, and guess what, Brother Mike? That piece of paneling is in my office. I just can't bear to give it up. I just can't. Lord. And they were going to throw away the front door to the church. It was in the dumpster, and I went and got it, and it's the front door to my house right now. And the door of the church is always open for reception at the Crawford's household. It is. Y'all are welcome there. Door church right there is always open. I just, it's, you say, well, Brother David, that's silly. You're right. We are. We are. But the lesson here tonight, let me tell you where you can always find the presence of God. This is the end. I promise, Brother Rom. I'll tell you where you can always find the presence of God. Once a year, once a year, Aaron, You'll find this in Leviticus 16. Once a year, Aaron would go back into the back room. And he would go back there with the blood. And we'd go to the ark where you'd be killed if you went there. Except on this day, Aaron could go if he went with blood. And the word of God says that when he would cover the mercy seat with blood. See, he had to have a shield between him and the law that was in that ark. And the blood would be the shield. And it would be because the blood was there, God then could appear in the presence of that mortal. When the blood was shed, the cloud of glory, the Shekinah glory of God would appear. The presence of God would be over the ark where there was blood over the mercy seat. I can tell you where you can always find the presence of the Lord. There is a calm, a sure retreat tis found beneath the mercy seat. Go to the throne of God and grace. You'll find mercy and grace to help in time of need. He's always at the mercy seat. May God bless you all and keep you as my prayer.